And for those of you who are visiting today, I may need to apologize for the sound of my wonderful voice. I have a raging head cold going on right now, uh, along with a small fever, uh, which makes speaking uh, all the more interesting for, for both of us, you and me. <laughs> so thank you for putting up with me. Last time we were together, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and we said that Genesis 3 lays out for us the idea that sin is a type of insanity. And uh, you'll remember that we looked at answering two different kinds of questions. One of them uh, is that... Um, why did God permit evil, hypothetically speaking, why did God permit evil to uh, perhaps rise? And I say perhaps because it's hypothetically speaking. And that would be details we find on the left side of this slide. How it is that love requires freedom and freedom creates risk and risk creates moral responsibility. And moral responsibility is generally proportionate to influence and influence is generally irrevocable. And, but yet the power to influence is limited. So we talked a little bit about this. This is what we laid down for uh, coming to a realization. Why has God permitted evil? Uh, and then on the right side, uh, something entirely different. Uh, Microsoft calls it a smart art graphic. Basically, it's just a way to put something out there in a picture, uh, an image. And in those items, the infinite goodness of God is supported by different ways in which the Bible makes it very clear that God is not responsible at all for the fact, the fact that sin has risen or has continued. So looking at it from two different ways. One way was looking at it, why is God hypothetically permitting evil? And the other one is, why does evil actually exist? Okay. And uh, these two examples uh, painted out for us a pretty clear picture about God that he is infinitely good and is in no way responsible for the rise of evil. Love is surely worth whatever it costs. And in order to uh, support love, uh, various other things need to be in place. So we talked about that last week in Genesis 3. And uh, now we're going to talk about something entirely different, which has more to do with the story itself, in which basically God's character comes under attack. And uh, we want to jump right in to our passage today. We're reading from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied, and that's why I ate it. The rise of evil on our planet is a fascinating story, fairly well known to many of us. I'd like to go through it a little bit more slowly. The interesting word for shrewdest of the wild animals is a word that also shows up because it's very much like the word for naked uh, in, uh, in the same passage. And uh, so here you can see some idea of how it is that the serpent began to attack God's character in our story. Did God really say? Whenever someone else assumes the responsibility of interpreting God's word to us, we need to make sure that we listen to God on our own and not just take someone else's word for it. Because here is a serpent who is saying, look, I know what God has actually said to you, and in the saying of what he believes God has said, he completely assassinates God's character. Has God said to you, you can't eat from even one single tree in the garden? Not even one? Well, that's a big stretch when you compare the story that's given to us in Genesis chapter 2, correct? I mean, there in Genesis, we read about how it is that God said, from all the other trees you can eat except this one tree. And yet the serpent has twisted it around, and now it's, you can't eat from any tree. Now, Eve, how can I say this? How many of you have ever heard the expression, making a deal with the devil? It's pretty common, right? Well, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll begin to talk ourselves into doing something. You know, it's, it's maybe it's not quite as bad as I thought to do this, and I really, you know, sort of do want to do it, so maybe I should go ahead and do the wrong thing that I'm beginning to think about. And we begin to converse with ourselves a little bit. 
And uh, in many ways, this is what Eve is doing. She's making a deal with the devil. She's talking to him about his understanding of God. And she says, oh, no, no, God didn't say that we couldn't eat from all of the trees of the garden. That's not what he said at all. What he said was, we can't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Now, if you're familiar with the Genesis story, then you know that's slightly off base. Because isn't there more than one tree in the middle of the garden? Yeah. There's two. One of them, the tree of life, right? Uh, and that one they can eat from. And then, of course, she goes on to say, God said that you must not... Come on. God says that you can't even touch it. Did God say that? When you're reading the book of Genesis, did God say they couldn't touch it? Now, if you were the serpent and you heard these words, what's the first thing you think you would do? If you're trying to persuade someone who has just exaggerated what God said. Well, I'd reach out and touch it, wouldn't you? I'd reach out and touch it, and then that would make a case, perhaps for my accuracy over your accuracy, if you were disagreeing with me. And so she exaggerates the truth, says that God had told them they couldn't even touch the fruit of this tree, which is not the case at all. And I'm sure that the serpent did what uh, he could to persuade her otherwise. But one of the things he first says as he's assassinating God's character is, you won't die. And of course, if he's touching it, then it's being rather persuasive what he's saying. You won't die. You can almost hear the slightly sneering tone in it. You won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And so here he begins to talk about how advantageous it is for us to know not only what's good, but also to know what's evil. Is it advantageous to know what's evil? So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. I'm going to thing that's being very sensitive today. So let me ask you a question. How can the woman see that the tree is good for food? Oh, the serpent must have taken a bite. You know, as long as he's touching it and he's trying to be persuasive, he takes a bite from the fruit. And now she can see it's not just a matter of, you know, I thought you, you, you weren't supposed to touch it, and, and if, you, if you did, you would die. But now here is the serpent. And the serpent's talking to me, obviously quite wise as well. And it's eating the fruit, and it's not dying. In fact, uh, it, it was a delight to the eyes. That was probably how it was made by God. And some people have asked me from time to time, why didn't God make the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why didn't he make it poisonous? Or why didn't he make it ugly so that you know, nobody would want it? And the answer is, that's not how God does business. 
If you read through the Genesis story, everything that God makes is good, 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 and very good. So the tree was not poisonous. The fruit was okay in that sense of the term. Had it been any different than that, we would have said some things about God's character, right? And uh, she finds it a delight to the eyes. But here's the kicker. The tree was desired to make one wise. Now, that's a point of view. That's a perspective that she is coming upon that's, that's beginning to, you know, crop up in her brain. This snake seems to be quite wise, so maybe I could also gain some wisdom as I am just eating fruit. Now, I'm not going to say to you uh, that uh, eating good, um, a good meal isn't, you know, good for your, your brain. I'm, we all know that it is, right? We've been told for all my lifetime, breakfast, the most important meal of the day, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I'm not going to say for a moment that eating a good meal isn't good for your brain power, but what I am going to say is how many of you believe that you have gotten instantly smarter just because you ate something? No? I'm betting that you, many of you have lived long enough to have seen advertisements on television that certainly suggested that. I mean, do you remember, for example, those of you who are quite, quite old, I mean, didn't you get that idea that if you drank Tang, you would be just as smart and as capable as astronaut? Right? I mean, wow. So, she comes to believe that somehow just eating this fruit is going to make her wiser, which is a strange notion in and of itself. Now, there's a prepositional phrase here that, uh, that has troubled some people. And you'll notice that I put some words, by the way, in, in a bracket uh, that aren't actually included in the Hebrew. Somebody added those because they thought it needed it for clarity. Because it actually ends up with just saying, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, what's interesting about this particular uh, Hebrew word, and it's found up here in this corner, right here, with her, is it means in solidarity with her. It doesn't mean that he was physically standing next to her, a silent partner, while she was listening and talking to the snake. In fact, actually, when you see it in the book of Genesis, it modifies what comes after it, not what came before it. And so, in this particular case, what that means is that he ate as she did too. She ate, he did it too. And so you can see there's some biblical examples in Genesis 21, verse 10. That Hebrew word right here is the same one as over here. And clearly it does not mean that the kids were physically present, but rather didn't want... Sarah didn't want Ishmael to inherit as well as her son Isaac. There is a Hebrew word that could be used to describe when a person is physically close to another person. It's called etzel, etzel, and in this case etzelah because the ending is, is, a, is next to a woman. 
So here you can see the difference between them. It's not like Adam had to have been next to her. As I said, that preposition word usually governs what comes after it. So he ate, Adam ate, as his wife ate, he did too. So we go back to our story and we see, you know, one day he asked the woman, you know, did God really say? Did God really say? And I have met thousands of people over the course of my lifetime who will come up with me with some question. They'll say, does the Bible really say? Or here's one, does Ellen White say? You know, here's a woman who wrote 25 million words. You know, I'm supposed to remember them all, I guess. Does God really say? Does God really say? And some, some of the things that people come up with are some of the most interesting ideas ever. And where they get some of their ideas from, I'm not always sure. But it's interesting to see this challenged uh, on this. And, and, and see this woman as she begins to dialogue with the devil. Do you do that all too often? Find yourself dialoguing with the devil? When that could definitely be a problem. You won't die. You won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. Wow. So we go through the story, and uh, we find that the moment in which they think that their eyes are going to be opened, that indeed their eyes were opened. It's just that instead of having their eyes opened and they're becoming like God, instead they realize that they were naked. Now, if I remember right, the Bible said that these two people, this couple, they were actually naked before, right? Naked and not ashamed. Isn't that what the scriptures teach us before? Now, what's interesting is if you take this particular Hebrew word that describes the first time that they're naked, it actually doesn't mean naked as we think of it. Uh, Hebrews would say lightly covered lightly covered. Now, in the Bible, in Psalm 104, verses 1 to 2, we read about God. Let all that I am praise the Lord, O Lord my God, how great you are. You are robed with honor and majesty. You are dressed, and there's that word, you are dressed in a robe of light. As near as we can tell from passages like this, when the Bible says that early on Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, they were actually lightly dressed in a robe of light like God is. They were, after all, his children. This robe of light is part of what they lost through sin. And they realized their nakedness very quickly. So they decided that they were going to make for themselves garments of leaves. Fig leaves, actually, uh, Scripture teaches us. So, so that should tell you something about what kind of trees were in the Garden of Eden. Uh, if in, uh, a fig tree, I just planted a fig tree in my backyard, by the way. Uh, it's about this tall, very small. And I, it started to produce figs, which I thought, huh, you know, it's a little early in the season, uh, uh, of this tree's, you know, career, so to speak, uh, uh, to be putting out figs already. I mean, how old is this little tree? Uh, and wouldn't you know the 
the first frost hit and my figs were ripening. Ah, what a bummer. They were turning purple. I was just waiting to try one to see if it would get sweet. And they just got right to that point and they did not. And I lost them all. So I'm thinking about this, the fig leaves that they're using. They're sewing these things together to cover themselves. And I asked myself this question. Did that fix their problem? Is there anyone here who has ever done something to fix your own problem and only to discover that you just made your problem much, much worse? Or well, maybe I'm the only person here. No? So you'll say you, you decide you're going to go out there and you're going to do some work on your car. And maybe that's not your forte. And so you begin working away, taking something apart, and you get just a little bit to, well, you strong arm that bolt. And you break the head of it off. And now you need to go buy, uh, um, you know, some kind of a stud remover piece because the only thing left is what's screwed in there with no head. And uh, you find that drilling a hole inside of that, uh, those, those bolts are pretty hard. And now taking out that broken bolt is actually way harder than maybe even the problem you were seeking to fix. We human beings, we like to compound our problems many times. And I believe this is what Adam and Eve were doing. The cool of the evening comes by. That would be uh, in the evening um, after the sun has kind of, you know, died down a little, gotten a little cooler. The man and his wife, they hear the Lord God walking about in the garden. And I've always been interested in this, why the Bible says this. They heard the Lord God walking about. It doesn't say they saw the Lord God walking about, but they heard him. Now, I'm presuming, like many people, that before they sinned, they saw God plenty of times. But from the moment they sinned, now they hear God. They don't see God. When you get to uh, the giving of the the, the stones, uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, we talk about how God said to the people, you've heard my voice, but you did not see a form. I think they're uh, in this uh, situation right now. Uh, they hear the Lord God walking about, walking about in the garden. Now what's interesting about this idea of God walking is that the word in Hebrew, it implies a sort of uh, habitual activity, something you've done regularly, uh, again and again, and something that you do with a fair amount of relaxation. You walk along, life is normal, nothing's changed on God's part. But something has changed in the hearts of Adam and Eve. God remains unchanged in that sense. He hasn't suddenly become a different person. God is walking, taking relaxed, normal steps. And what's fascinating is the walking that we see uh, or hear of God doing in Genesis chapter 3 is the same kind of activity, the same Hebrew word and the same Hebrew verb form even, to describe God's walking in the sanctuary. Now we have said 
in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis so far, there's a lot of sanctuary language that surfaces in the early part of Genesis. And here we have, once again, God doing something very similar to what God does later in the sanctuary. And so Eden is a, is a, is a type of sanctuary, holy place. And God says, you know, or, or Adam says, I heard you walking in the garden, and so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever hidden yourself, physically hidden yourself, because of some fear that you had? All right, just a couple of you. Apparently, you are a brave lot. Um, do you not remember a few times you did some things maybe as a kid? How, how about some times where even as an adult you said to yourself, boy, I'd like to avoid that person because they might find out something that I did that they may not like. And so you went out of your way to avoid them. Is that possible for some of you as adults? You're afraid. Why would someone become afraid of God just like that? Why? Had God changed? Was he now really a, the, the mean guy that the devil had painted him out to be? When I was younger, I had an impression about God that God was hard to get along with, very hard to get along with. In fact, uh, as I went through life and I could sort of see the kinds of things that the church seemed to be wanting me to do, I said to myself, there is no way I'm going to be able to do all those things. God must be incredibly difficult to get along with. And when I got to my teen years and I moved into the Auburn Academy, the one thing I definitely found out the hard way was the worst room in the dormitory was where? It was next to or right above, particularly right above the dean's residence. Right? And I was certain as a kid that the last place I wanted to be was stuck in heaven in an apartment next to God's. Because I was certain that God was a difficult person to get along with. He won't like how much noise I make, uh, maybe at the wrong time of the day or night. Uh, he's just not going to get along well with me. And uh, I had a tremendous amount of weird, almost superstitious fear of God growing up. God begins to ask some questions when uh, Adam responds, and God says, who told you that you were naked? Do you see an answer in our text? Does Adam answer God's question, who told you you were naked? Do you see one? No, right? In fact, Adam's nakedness seems to be an unanticipated consequence of sinning. One that he doesn't seem to enjoy at all. In fact, he doesn't like being naked. He, he likes it so little, in fact, that he went out and he got some leaves and he began to fashion them around for clothing. Have you ever made a wrong decision, a bad choice that had an unintended consequence? 
unanticipated consequence. You know what that's like? Unanticipated consequence. It's uh, not, not much fun to experience. Consequences that you find decidedly unpleasant. There was the time, as I mentioned before, uh, that I broke into the desk uh, of my seventh grade teacher and took out the answer key to the final history exam. The unintended consequence was I almost had, if it weren't for the mercy of the school, I almost had to repeat seventh grade. Now, when you're an A student, that's a bummer. Unintended consequence. Unanticipated consequence. The next question regarding whether he ate of the tree God had told him not to eat from, he does have an answer to that one, right? And here's what he says. It was the woman you gave me. Now, who is he blaming? And who else? The woman. Hmm. The woman you gave me, God, She's the reason why. Now, you notice at the end of this, where this comes? Now, some of you, you know, because I brought this up one time a while back. Do you remember what transitivity is? Come on, you English student. Transitivity is when we discuss who or what does what to who or what. Right? Transitivity. When you mess with transitivity, you do your very best, usually, to dodge responsibility. In fact, if I were to lay out a, a kind of step-by-step -step change in transitivity, you will see it goes all the way from I did it to it broke. Any of you ever heard a, a child or a grandchild say that? When you ask How'd this happen? And they say to you, it broke. Did you know that a very, very young child knows almost from the beginning of their ability to talk, knows how to mess with transitivity? They didn't get formal lessons on it like you, you did later in, in, in life when you took English classes and stuff, right? They didn't get any formal, but they knew instinctively that if I, if I manage the language correctly, I don't have to own up to what I did. And what's fascinating to me about this story, uh, and notice here that uh, Eve does the very same thing that Adam does, right? Right at the end. Now, people who deal with transitivity and especially in responsibility and taking responsibility, they say that even if a person confesses to doing it, that you're not, quite as, you're not holding yourself quite as responsible for doing it if you put yourself at the very end than if you put yourself at the very beginning. You've softened taking responsibility by putting yourself at the very end. In Hebrew, the word I ate is a single word, and it comes right at the very end of both Adam's speech and Eve's speech. 
They're messing with transitivity. A confession, but not an honest one. And the phrase, what have you done, spoken by God, asked by God, uh, is an interesting one. If you track it through scripture, it almost always expresses some kind of a shock. Some kind of disbelief because the person has done something um, unexpected. You expected better from them. And instead they did this. God expected a different outcome. You remember in that smart art graphic we showed in, in the beginning, there was one of them that said that uh, there was godly expectation, establishes the infinite goodness of God, his complete innocence regarding the origin and development of sin. Well, here is a godly expectation expressed by God. What have you done? He expected differently. What have you done? Do you know when the next time God asks that question is in the book of Genesis? Take a stab, take a guess. Genesis chapter 4, when Cain killed Abel. Now, you would get the idea when you tie some of these together that what Adam and Eve did was not so simplistic as just eating fruit, but rather they had done something heinous. What have you done? Responsibility is an interesting thing. How do sinners respond to the gentle and yet penetrating questions of God? Well, if you want to avoid responsibility, there are things that you do. And it's true in our world, it's true in the biblical world. The first thing you do is you don't respond. You're silent. So there's a place in the Bible where, you know, king comes in, he goes, friend, how come you're not wearing your wedding garments? And the Bible says, the guy was speechless. Because there was no excuse he could offer. So you can be silent, or you can begin to make various excuses. You can tell lies, you can offer partial truths, you can blame others, you can offer an improper justification, you know, I did it, but I really had good reasons when you didn't. Or you can scheme. You can try to change the outcome. Or you can just flat out try to hurt or destroy the, the, the more righteous person who's talking to you. There's a parable about a man who's being called into account by his boss uh, because he's been absconding with the boss's money. And uh, he goes out and he begins to make a deal with some of uh, his, his uh, boss's um, buyer's uh, and he says, how much do you owe you know, the boss? And he gives him an amount, and he says, well, cut it in, in half and, and pay me that kind of thing. You can scheme your way out sometimes. Adam and Eve schemed some in the making of fig leaves. Um, or you can take responsibility. You can either take a firm stand, no, I was doing the right thing when I did it, I know that I was, or you can just say, I did the wrong thing. God has some gentle ways in this story of the rise of evil. He asks questions, questions that I'm sure he knew the answer to, but at least, well, can I, how can I say this? Questions he probably knew the answer to, because there are a few of them, they may not be answerable. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And what have you done? Do you notice that all of God's responses to Adam and Eve were in the form of questions? Not trying to run roughshod over them. Very gentle in the way he did it. How did the first couple do when answering God's questions? Well, let's see. There was silence, uh, first off, from Adam. There was... uh, some lies being told, some partial truths. They blamed others. They schemed. Not so good, right? Not so good. How are you and I doing? Isn't it true that even though there are no two trees out there today that you and I could go pick uh, from and eat, isn't it true that in our daily walk we have lots of choices that we get to make? And we have ways of either accepting responsibility for the decisions we make, or we have ways of dodging responsibility. How are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing? Am I owning up to the poor choices I make or not? Am I blaming other people? Telling a lie? The story of the rise of evil is an interesting story in the Bible. There's so much to think about. Let's pray. Father God, would you guide us today as we share lunch together? Would you help us to think about the rise of evil in our own life? Help us to think about it such that we uh, are led to make different choices, to make better choices, to confess to the things that we've done wrong, to make good choices and take a stand on those good choices rather than do all the things that, that we do. Well, as one song I write, you know, I can blame it on someone else rather than blaming it on myself. Why do we play these interesting games, he's saying? Why do we do it? God, would you help us to stop playing games with truth and 